Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle-Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen concludes her two-part discussion with neuroscientist and psychologist Dr. James Cohn on his social baseline model. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here from Shaddock. Well, it is with great enthusiasm that I introduce our guest for today, who is Dr. James Cohn. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Cohn. He is professor of psychology and director of the Virginia Effective Neuroscience Laboratory at the University of Virginia. He has consulted with clinicians, businesses, and researchers working with groups as diverse as the Oregon Social Learning Center, the Anna Freud Center and the Kurt Lewin Institute, as well as the Community of Democracies. He has authored more than 80 peer-reviewed articles, and his work has been covered in Science, Nature, and the New York Times, the Washington Post, Time Magazine, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, NPR, The Today Show, and other major media outlets. He has earned many awards for his scientific research. What some of you will recognize him related to is social baseline theory and the social baseline model, as it has some overlap with attachment theory and also some differences, which he will be speaking with us about today. I first heard Dr. Cohn speak uh, several years ago. I lose track of time, maybe five years ago in New York City at the International Conference of Attachment Studies. And I had read some of his material prior to that, but when I heard his presentation, I was just completely enamored with with what he is studying and what he is sharing. Uh, Perhaps one of his most famous experiments relates to holding hands with someone while something potentially scary happens to you and the impact of that. And we'll be talking about all of that with him. So stay tuned. Dr. Cohn will be coming right up. Hey, Dr. Cohn, I'm excited to continue our discussion. (laughs) Great, me too. So last week we went over some of the the journey that led you to develop social baseline theory and this whole like switch in your understanding of really, I guess, would it be correct to say that in connection as a baseline for humans rather than out of connection, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. In fact, that is to the, to the extent that humans can't even imagine being disconnected truly fully they can fear it they can feel the effects of it but they can't really imagine being disconnected any more than they can really imagine being dead well and one of the other things that you point out in some of the literature you've written is that this does turn some of the ways that we do psychological experiments kind of upside down yes we look so individual now 
you know, I'm a clinical social worker, so I like looking broader and in bigger systems and things like that. But I wonder if you can make a couple comments about that um, yeah. implications for psychological studies. So last week I talked about Denny Prophet, my yes. colleague at, at University of Virginia. Yes. And shortly after we had this exchange where he changed my life radically by with a simple, friendly conversation, the guy is yes. so brilliant. That made the um, experiment that was the biggest failure, the biggest success. <laughs> exactly. He just, he just, it's like a figure ground problem. <laughs> you really um, love that guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we started talking about this implication. Like yes. what if, uh, what if um, the, this is really true and the human baseline habitat is to be embedded in a social situation, a social network. Well, then what does that mean for all of these experiments that have been going on for a hundred years? Yes. We take people and we put them into a little cubicle and we isolate them from others. And then we test them on various measures and various things that are very well controlled experimentally. But what how do we how do we understand that stuff now and we felt we both felt we communicated with each other this, this sort of sinking feeling that we've been learning you know strictly speaking what humans are capable of but not what humans do yeah and that's a really different question yes um so you know denny had been doing these studies where he looked at uh, the slant of hills and how people estimate the slant of hills. And it, there's a lot to this. It's very, very I love this. theoretically rich. I love uh, this. Word. But um, he, he found in his classic work, his famous studies, that people automatically everywhere overestimate the slant of a hill. And, you know, he was interested in this in terms of, uh, you know, visual perception. Um, and he started asking, you know, well, why should everybody overestimate the slant of, of a hill? Sort of semantically, verbally, in their experience, they actually don't misjudge where to put their foot. That's all fine. But the question is, when they say to themselves, is that a steep hill or a non-steep hill? Um, people overestimate how steep it is. And the reason he thinks they do that is because, again, humans are animals and animals forage and for food and avoid threats. And everything that animals do incurs a cost, mm -hmm. right? It incurs a cost and you want to minimize the cost of action mm -hmm. while you're maximizing the benefit of acquisition of resources. Mm -hmm. So people overestimate the slant of hills because their brains are subtly, maybe not so subtly, trying to persuade them not to walk up hills. There better be something really nice up that hill for you to walk up it. The yes. reason it turns into a semantic kind of experience as we talk to ourselves about the nature of that hill is because that self-talk is associated with our motivation. Mm -hmm. All things being equal, our brain would much rather that we didn't walk up a hill than that we did. Yes. Um, 
again, all things being equal, there must be something really great up there um, to make us flock. Now, that was the first neat finding, but then he took it to a whole different level by separating, randomly assigning his subjects into groups that either did or did not wear heavy backpacks while they were estimating the size of the hill. Yes. And what he found was that wearing a heavy backpack systematically increased the estimation of the hill slant. This fits perfectly if you think ecologically. The body is now taxed in terms yes. of its resources, and it's saying, now I really don't want to walk up that hill. Yes. So in order to dissuade myself, I will perceive it as steeper and more formidable. Okay. So that's a lot of background. How yes. does this fit in with, with the, the problem of the social baseline? Well, uh, a couple of years after the handholding study, Denny did a little experiment with Simone Schnall and some others. Simone is at Cambridge University now. And what they did is they repeated the backpack experiment, except for in this experiment, everybody got a backpack, heavy backpack, but, but subjects were randomly assigned to stand at the bottom of the hill alone or next to their best friend. And what do you think happened? They, the hill uh, became less steep while they were yes, standing next to their friend. Yes, yes. And I related this one. I heard you talk about this too. Um, as a marathon runner, I had this thing where I had to see my husband at the start line and I would like, or I thought I, I felt like I couldn't do it. And so I would like scan the, the people watching and need to find him. I was a little panicked if I couldn't find him. And then when I saw him, I thought I could run it. <laughs> it's so fascinating. Um, you know, this was a great finding in the sense that it was very, um, vivid it was, yes. it was it was you know this was like wow that is really cool but of course you can't stop there you have to say well how in the heck does this happen yes because denny's whole model is that the reason that the brain is trying to perceive the hill is more steep when your heavy backpack is on is because you have fewer bioenergetic resources to spend okay well, bioenergetic resources, that's glucose and oxygen to perform ATP and to generate energy for your, your brain and body. Mm -hmm. How in the heck does standing next to, next to your friends implicate your own body's bioenergetic resources? This doesn't make sense. At least biochemically, it doesn't make sense. Yes. So we had, a, we had another conundrum. We had another problem to solve. And there's, these things just keep pop, popping up. It's like whack-a-mole. Um, how does it work? How does this work? And we had this, we, we, we started with a leap of faith. Um, somehow, we decided, somehow the brain is calculating that when my friend is there, I don't need as, to spend as much bioenergetic fuel in my body to get up that hill. Somehow that's happening. We still, the faith part is that we still believed that it must be yoked somehow to how the brain budgets our bioenergetic, um, uh, you know, account. Yes. The problem was how does it take a separate body and translate that 
into what my body is capable of. One thing you could say is, well, okay, the brain is assuming that I'll be helped. That's reasonable, but then that's just another, that's just kicking the can down the street. How does it assume that it's gonna be helped? So Lane Beckus and I um, designed a study where we redid the handholding experiment, only this time we also uh, put the handholder under threat of shock. So everybody was under threat of shock at different times now. And what that allowed us to do was to look at the same brain, looking at the same cues, at the same occasion of measurement, just varying who the cue was referring to. Sometimes it's referring to you in the scanner, sometimes it's referring to your friend, and sometimes it's referring to a stranger. Okay, so what did we find? This was the thing that was so mind-boggling to me that I, I, didn't, I, 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 I didn't feel like a failure this time, but I couldn't figure out how to do it, and I wound up having to talk to Buddhists to help me figure it out. So that's, there's a little, little uh, teaser for you. <laughs> the, the finding was that when your friends under threat of shock, your brain reacts as if you are under threat of shock. I'll say that one more time. When your friend is under threat of shock, your brain reacts as if it's you under threat of shock. Is that like have anything to do with mirror neurons? Not really, because that's like watching someone do something and your brain thinks you're doing it. It's so a kind of mirroring, I guess, but it's not really mirror neurons. It's not in the that. Sense. And it was much more pervasive than mirroring. So yes. we saw this all over the brain in systems as varied as prefrontal regulatory systems and subcortical affect programs and somatosensory body mapping. So think about that last one, somatosensory body mapping. You're activating maps of your body when your friend is getting shocked. So far, so good. There's a, was it different when the stranger? Yes, I was just gonna say, so, so far, so good. There's a theory that's been around for a long time that derives somewhat from mirror neurons that we simulate another person's experience in order to understand their experience, except that this effect didn't happen at all when it was a stranger. So if this was meant that we wouldn't say it's measuring empathy and we wouldn't say that because of this, what right. you just said. We wouldn't say it's empathy necessarily because um, people were able to guess that the stranger wasn't having a nice time when they're under threat of shock. They just couldn't assume what the stranger was actually feeling. Okay. You know the stranger. Yes. Right. The thing about that assumption is that you only you, you it's it's not like you were you just knew what your friend was feeling. You assumed that they were feeling whatever you would feel. Mm -hmm. This gets a little tricky, but here's the thing. It's not empathy, it's identification. I identify with you. And if you take it just a couple of half steps further, I am you. You are me. We are uh, becoming the same person. What sounds like, happens to sounds your like body, the writings about symbiosis or something. <laughs> so 
so, you know, this is what it looked like to me. And I was like, well, you know, I, you know, you do what you do as a scientist, you go for a literature search and there's nothing really like this. There's like, there's lots of empathy stuff. There's some stuff by Jean Dessetti that's brilliant um, on uh, distinguishing empathy and identification. Uh-huh. And that wound up being really helpful. But mostly there's this debate about whether the way we empathize is we simulate people by, by doing a simulation, uh, you know, subtly in our brain of our own body. That's one argument of how we empathize. The other is something called theory of mind. Yes. That I use my, uh, my cortex, particularly my prefrontal cortex, to organize information about you to know what you're thinking or what you're feeling. And these camps are in sort of competition with each other for explaining empathy. But we found by varying who it was that it could be both. And if you think about it for just a second, this makes perfect sense. One of the things that I tell my students is that the human brain, that all brains are lazy. Brains always want to get the most by spending the least. They're efficient. They're little economists. (sighs) And one of the reasons that we enjoy being around our friends is because we don't have to work very hard to predict what they're feeling and thinking. This is really reducing our relationships to, you know. <laughs> yeah. To, to basic energy lazy. requirements. <laughs> yeah, basic energy requirements. But here's why it's so important. Now we know why standing next to your friend makes the hill less steep, even if you're wearing a heavy backpack. It's because when your brain is creating what we subjectively experience as a model of the self, it's including their body in that model. Their bioenergetic resources that you can predict well because you know them so well Mm -hmm. is affecting how you budget your own because your body, your sense of self isn't just what's in your skin. It's including that social habitat that you're embedded in. And thinking for a moment, this must be true of any animal in their habitat. What causes a stress response, or another way to say your stress response is to say your brain is investing more bioenergetic fuel and money in dealing with the world. That's what a stress response is. Mm -hmm. Um, Is to get you back to your habitat. Mm-hmm. Right. So right. again, we're back to the social baseline. The social baseline is such such a baseline that your whole sense of self is dependent upon it, and your sense of self is just the subjective experience that rides on top of your brain, creating a model of what resources the self contains in dealing with the challenges of the world. Holy crap! That was really. A lot. That's a lot. So related to that, because I mentioned it last time, I feel an obligation for you to share about risk distribution and load sharing and how that relates to all of this. Yeah. So one of the things that we wanted to do with the theory is talk about basic ways in which 
the social baseline adjusts our bioenergetic investment in coping with the demands of the world and achieving our goals, you know, yes. you know taking advantage of the, the rich rewards and affordances that are out there. Um, the first thing that we have to deal with, though, is um, risk, because the world is really risky. If you find a nice reward, that might get you an extra couple of sandwiches or something, you know. But if you find a nasty uh, uh, danger, that could kill you. Right? Yeah. So we, we need to be really worried about that. Well, in our studies, we found that some people... Not everybody, and we can talk about that in a minute too if we have time. But some people, mostly people, uh, Karen, that look like you and me, that are white, well-educated, um, uh, relatively uh, high SES, those of us who are like that assume that they're going to get a help from lots of different people, from strangers. Um, now, in this way, I think that we are representative, actually, of humans in their earliest evolutionary state. We're in, we, we, humans, as they evolved to be in small groups, knew everybody, depended on everybody, and so forth. Yes. So the first decision that the brain makes when it's trying to figure out how much of a stress response to have in, in just general world ambient risk mm -hmm. is to say, well... How many people are around me? How many warm bodies are around me? Uh -huh. This is risk distribution, and lots of animals do it. Ostriches do it. Schools of fish do it. Herding animals of all kinds do it. Um, the, this is simply being around enough other critters that your brain can make a quick and you know thumbnail calculation does its own kind of math that says, well, I don't have to outrun the bear anymore. I just have to outrun that guy. <laughs> yeah. The bear will take care of the rest, right? right? That's risk distribution and it's not very romantic. It's very much old, what's called plesiomorphic uh, animal adaptation that causes groupiness, right? That causes animals to group together. If I group together, this is why, um, sorry, there's a truck going by. I hope that's not <laughs> causing too much problem here. This is um, making me think of herd immunity. <laughs> yes, that's right. This is why, um, this is also how um, penguins regulate their temperature in the Antarctic. They huddle, right? Mm -hmm. And they conserve heat by by being together so it's a very clear sharing of energy and conservation right. of energy the penguins sort of straddle this space between risk distribution and load sharing so let me talk about load sharing with load sharing what happens is you and i karen now are we we've, we've established a friendship uh which humans do like that they do humans find ways to create relationships by default. We just do it. We don't even know we're doing it. Uh -huh. Hi, I'm Jim. Oh, hi, where are you from? Well, I, you know, I'm originally from Seattle. Oh, I have a friend in Seattle. Oh yeah, what does your friend do? Oh, they're a psychologist. Oh, well, I'm a psychologist. You know, uh -huh. blah, 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 blah. We will find, we will ask our 20 questions and find ways to bond. 
And that's unconditional reinforcing, unconditionally reinforcing. It feels good no matter what, because that means that we're likely to share each other's load. If something happens after we have that silly little conversation for five minutes in the line at Starbucks, and suddenly there's a big explosion outside, you and I, because of that little conversation, are a little more likely to watch out for each other. Yes. Yes. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. If you and I um, start forming a real friendship, then we start sharing things more intimately. And we start knowing about each other's needs. Mm-hmm. Maybe I know that you're having a hard time at work or in your relationship or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I'll ask you about it. Mm-hmm. And I will, and, and by asking you about it, I am lending you some of my vigilance for a problem that you have. And you will start, as a function of our relationship, start wondering about, you know, uh, the, the recent death in my family. And you'll say, how are you, how are you, how's that going? Do you need some company? You know, or do you want to talk about it? Or do you need some help, you know, moving some of their stuff out of the house? I mean, that's labor, right? Yes. Um, all of that is interpreted more or less the same way by the brain. Your brain interprets me holding your hand because you're sad and me helping you get a table up the stairs in very similar ways. It's all about sharing the literal load of the table or the more figurative load of your emotion regulation. But your emotional regulation is not really figurative either. We now talk about emotional labor. When you are in a new place, if you travel to a new country and you don't speak the language and you don't know where you're going to get food, you'll be distressed. That's a form of emotional labor. If I'm there with you and we have our friendship, our lovely friendship that started in the line at Starbucks five years ago, and now we've gotten to know each other, I'm going to carry part of the load of looking for food and trying to figure out what to do. That's emotional labor, just like lifting a table. You know, it's just so fascinating to think about relationships in those terms. And I'm, I'm reminded years ago, there was uh, at Chadock where I work, we have a residential treatment program. And so obviously it's really hard when kids are being dropped off there by their parents, especially because a lot of these kids have a lot of trauma and attachment disruptions already. And I remember there was this one child that later when we were talking about first coming to Chaddock and we have this long drive that comes up the way to uh, the place. And she said, well, I watched my parents drive away but I knew it would be okay because a staff member was holding my hand. It was, at that point, a stranger. I mean, they're yeah. just meeting us. And I was like, wow. I have to tell you, Karen, I hear these anecdotes all the time. People write to me, they send me cards, they send me letters, they send me emails. Um, and they come from all over the world. I've gotten them from China, from Brazil, from Germany, from France, from Canada, from Japan. And they're all 
anecdotes, but at some point there's such a pile of them that it starts to really become data. Yes, we also had a group of uh, four Korean nuns that visited Chadok to look at our work and take it maybe back to some orphanages. And they all held hands the whole time they were walking on the campus. And I thought, oh my gosh, like that would make you feel so much more, like you were talking about a foreign country and different language and all of that. It's just so fascinating. I mean, with with our kids when we're at a crowded festival when we used to in the in the in the before times yes <laughs> yes um, uh you know we'd all link up in a chain of hand holding yeah they connected as we moved through a potentially right. dangerous situation right um yeah everything is the same yeah. All, all the handholding ever, all the, when we talk about connection, it's for that purpose. So I know we're almost out of time, but I really want you to be able to speak to some of the things with your theory, with social baseline theory that confirmed attachment theory, but then there were other things that were how are you going to talk about this in five minutes? I don't know. Whatever. Um, and and the whole one of those being the whole idea of, you know, attachment is child to parent and then it's romantic partners yeah. and disagreement about that and your ideas of broadening that. And yeah. I don't know, whatever any of this triggers in, in your thinking uh, to to pull this under the attachment theory umbrella a little bit. Well, first of all, there's nothing in social baseline theory that says attachment theory is wrong. Especially yes. if we go back to the basics of attachment theory. Yes. Um, well, there are certain things. So as a neuroscientist, for example, I know that the, 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 the so-called attachment behavioral system yes. doesn't exist as a neural circuit or as a set of neural circuits. It's just not there. The way that I put it in a chapter I wrote was that it's really more true that the whole brain is an attachment behavioral system, if anything. It's just because we're because we're we're designed to exist in a so, in a social baseline, a social habitat. Um, I do see attachment theory as more of a special case of um, specific kinds of researcher or, or, or relationships. So attachment theorists talk about the attachment figure, for example. Right. They can do that. There's clearly some people who are more important for how we manage our bioenergetic resources than others. And I'm <laughs> what a way to say it. <laughs> I know. I'm comfortable calling those people attachment figures if we, okay. if we if we want to. Okay. But I am. It's true that I definitely place far less importance on those attachment figures, those putative or so-called attachment figures. Than, uh, than, you know, uh, Howard Steele would or, or um, uh, you know, Sue Johnson. Um, because I think that's not really how humans are designed. Um, humans, it is clear, especially human babies, chimp babies will never leave their mother. And chimps are what Bowlby referred to when he right. was first designing it. Chimps literally attach to their mothers and they don't, detach until weaning but all over the world in every culture you look at human babies are tossed around like footballs by comparison 
Um, and this is good. This is not bad. This is good because the baby's brain needs to know that there's more than mom. The baby's brain, I'll say this again, needs to know that more than mom exists to help provision it through its childhood. Because humans are not designed to be taken care of by a, just a mom. They're yeah. not. And that, wow, we could say a lot about that and the problems in today's society. Oh my God, we no need to longer... support moms so much more than we do mm-hmm. at every level, level, at the policy level, at the you know local level. Moms are not being sufficiently supported in our society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's affecting kids and it's affecting, if we're talking about attachment theory, it's affecting children's attachments. Yes. Yes. We ask too much. Yeah. It's too much for one person to provide. That's right. We need allo parents. Moms need their parents around. They need their communities around. Mm -hmm. But that's just to say that the babies need all of that. Yes. Yes. Well, this as I knew it would be, is a fascinating and too short discussion. Um, There's so much more I had in my notes to talk to you about. I might have to see if I can chase you down to come back again sometime. Yeah, that'd be fun. (laughs) But I I know you're a very busy person. And I, again, want to express my appreciation for uh, you taking time to speak with me and also the amazing contributions that you've made to science and helping us understand that our habitat is each other. Yep. And our social behavior while we're together. Yeah. So thank you so much. You bet. Thank you for having me on. This was really fun. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.